Great to see you this morning. I'm really pleased to be following on from our series. We took a little break last week. We were talking about mission and loads of different mission trips that people can get involved with. That still hasn't gone away. It's still very much a thing. If you would like to do that, there will be some leaflets around either on the seats or at the Connect area. But what I'm going to be doing this morning is resuming our series on emotional, healthy spirituality. Uh, Hopefully the first slide should be coming up. Oh, there it is. Fantastic. It's normally up at the back, but that is not now working, so I will have to look behind me. Um, So what have you talked about so far? What does this actually mean? Well, this is based on a book by a guy called Pete Scazzaro, who is a pastor in New York, in America, and he has been looking at or thinking through this phrase, it is impossible to be spiritually mature and to also be emotionally immature. So we cannot be spiritually mature without being also emotionally mature. So over the last few weeks, Nigel's been unpacking that a little bit and talking about the importance of the subject and a little bit about what unhealthy, emotional unhealthy spirituality looks like. And most recently, Paul talked two weeks ago, I just spilled water all down myself, that's not a great start, is it? Um, about hitting the wall. <laughs> that's what he talked about. Um, and today I'm going to be looking uh, at surrendering to our limits, surrendering to our limits, looking at loss and looking at grief. Now... I will be talking about some difficult subjects this morning. Um, I am going to be talking about bereavement. I am going to be talking about grief. And I am going to be talking about loss. So I'm acutely aware that for some of us in the room, this may not be the easiest talk to hear. Okay? This may be a hard talk. Um, and I'm acutely aware of that. And I'm, I'm really sorry for that. I'm sorry that you're in a hard place. I'm speaking specifically to those of you who are suffering bereavement or suffering kind of grief or really going through it at the moment. Um, This is not going to be a place where you can forget all about that today. This is going to be walking right into it. And so for some of you, this is going to be difficult. And I I fully accept that. And hopefully you can hear my heart on this. That, you know, I really want, I won't have easy answers for you. um, But there are many, many people here who understand these issues, have walked through them, and will be able to help us find a way through them. Uh, So just wanted to acknowledge that to start with. But it's not just about bereavement. It's not just about grief and about loss. It's about limits. And the idea of limits uh, in our culture is kind of an interesting one. It it basically collides head-on with what our culture says about limits. So our culture teaches us that there are no limits to our lives. We can achieve whatever we want to. In the words of George McFly from Back to the Future, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. I sort of kind of lived by that uh, as a kind of eight-year-old when I first watched that film. Um, So you get motivational posters like this one. There is one grand lie we are limited. The only limits we have are the limits we believe. And it sounds great, doesn't it? If only it were true. It's just not true. This is a lie. They're saying it's a grand lie that we're limited. That's not a lie. The the lie is that we aren't limited. We are limited fundamentally. Um, So we are taught this by our culture that we have no limits and we can achieve anything we want to. Um, And that isn't actually true. What we can achieve is what God has for us to achieve and and what God has created us to achieve. And that may be bigger than anything we can ever imagine, but that's still what it is. Okay, there is no way that I can live in Africa, America, Antarctica, and the Arctic, and you know, experience what it's like to live through ten winters um, and the kind of very top of the world, and also through desert summer, and also live in the jungles of India, and also take up you know poetry and carpentry, and you know, kind of learn about um, the kind of uh, the ways of an Aboriginal people by living with them for ten years, and at the same time going through life, um, deciding that I'm going to you know become a master at the flute and something else, and join an orchestra and compose symphonies. I can't do all of those things. 
You know, there's no way that I can do all of those things. Um, I may be able to do one of them, uh, but I certainly can't do all of them. Um, It is true, this is partly true, that we can put our mind to things and we can accomplish many things. Okay, but we will not be able to accomplish all of those things at the same time. Um, We are fundamentally limited as people. Now, true spirituality is not an escape from reality. Okay, it's a commitment to reality. Um, And as part of that, as part of all of that reality, we must learn to walk into and to process grief, loss, and limits. This is part of who we are and is part of the way that God has made us. And actually, it is a gift. And we're going to come on to that in a minute. Now, our culture treats loss, treats limitation as some kind of alien invasion in our lives. We kind of you know, go through life, and I'm acutely aware of this as a, as a parent, you know, uh, as you watch your kids and they're so vulnerable and small and then they grow and then they go out for the first time and then they stay overnight for the first time and then they go to a party for the first time and then they, they go to university for the first time and you're terrified all the time that something might happen to them, you know, and, and our culture treats this kind of, um, any kind of loss or any difficulty or any, any catastrophic thing as an alien invasion, but ultimately loss is part of life and this is something that our culture has forgotten. Okay, so we're going to look at a biblical example. Um, I would love to look at one particular passage, but today I'm going to look at a whole book, and it's 42 chapters long. I'm going to look at the book of Job. Okay, so we're not going to read the whole thing. You might be glad. Uh, it is long, and it's quite, um, yeah, it's quite heavy going. But um, uh, ultimately, we have uh, an example in the book of Job, which some say is possibly the oldest book in the Bible, the one that was first written. Um, It's possibly the oldest story that we have in the Bible. Um, A man, we're looking at a man called Job, who was fundamentally unlimited in many, many ways. In fact, he was probably more unlimited than everybody in this room. Okay? Um, And he had to come to terms with his limits and with catastrophic loss in his life. So we're going to look at the whole uh, book of Job, and we're going to look at the highlights, the highlighted versions of the book. So let's have a look at the first piece of the book, and I've reproduced this for you on your sheets. Just pull that out. Um, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Uh, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. This man was the Bill Gates of his day. It says a little bit later that he was the greatest person of the East. If he was alive today, he would have appeared on Time magazine pretty much every year. Because he was just so celebrated. He was so wealthy. He was sort of a tens of billions billionaire type billionaire. You know, only, only very few people in the world uh, would kind of approach his level of wealth at the time. Now, the amazing thing about Job is that he wasn't just fantastically wealthy. He was also the Billy Graham of his day, as well as being the Bill Gates of his day. Because this is what God said about him. He said, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. When God says there is no one on earth like him, that's quite an accolade. You know, so the man was a kind of cross between Bill Gates and Billy Graham. That's kind of how I like to think of him. Um, so the story, however, tells us that within pretty much a few days, Job loses all of his wealth. He loses all of his children to a catastrophic um, earthquake and, and there's all sorts of things going on there. He loses his health. He becomes sick. He has sores all over his body. Um, he can't sleep. Uh, he has fevers. He has chills. And in the very end, he loses his marriage 
Because his wife says, what are you doing? Curse God and die, is what she says to him. That's not very nice, you know, for a wife to say. Uh, so he's obviously, you know, his marriage isn't in a great shape, you know. Uh, so, so he's lost everything. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. He's lost his health and his marriage. Now, we may look at this and think, oh, this is an isolated incident. This is just an example. It's not really real. Why is this story even in the Bible? Well, the theologian Jonathan Edwards talks about this story, and this is a picture of him. Um, he said that the story of Job is the story of us all, okay? because we are all fundamentally limited as people. We cannot do or be anything we want, as I said before. Now, uh, we may not experience what Job experienced. I think you have to be profoundly unlucky or you know, the subject of a poem to go through what Job went through. But um, most of us do experience catastrophic loss in our lives, don't we, at some point. So if we haven't already, it's probably going to happen. You know, most of us will experience something that will just completely take us apart. You know, perhaps a close family member dies or commits suicide. Maybe a spouse has an affair. Maybe we find ourselves single again after a divorce or a messy breakup. Uh, maybe we get diagnosed with cancer or someone we, very close to us gets diagnosed with cancer. And maybe we lose our job very suddenly and go through a long period of unemployment. Uh, maybe we have a child who is born really unwell or with a debilitating disability. Uh, maybe we suffer miscarriage and are unable to conceive. Many of us suffer catastrophic loss. The story of Job is in some way the story of us all. We have to go through something similar to what Job went through, even in a slightly smaller way. But it's not also true that those are the only losses we experience. It's not accurate to say that we sort of go through life bunkered down, hoping one of these huge things isn't going to happen to us anytime soon. Although many of us live like that. Uh, we actually experience many losses during our lives, and we need to grieve for many things that actually we may not be aware of. And part of becoming emotionally mature is learning how to grieve well. Okay, so some of us need to grieve um, the fact that we didn't have a happy childhood that we have to go through the process of uh, picking up the pieces in our own hearts uh, to deal with the things that we went through. We don't always get that. Uh, not everybody has a happy childhood. Not everybody is brought up well like that. Um, when we have children, it's a great, joyous thing, but we also lose something. We lose our personal freedom. We lose the ability to take a shower whenever we like, for example. You know, it becomes, especially when you have two, it becomes like, oh, well, I need you hold the baby, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to do it, and then, you know, you have a bath, and I'm going to have a bath, and then, you know, we'll, we might actually just get everybody out, you know, only an hour late. You know, you lose some kind of personal freedom, don't you? And to a certain extent, it's not like a catastrophic loss, but you do have to grieve that. You do have to grieve the loss of personal freedom. Um, many of us uh, hope to do many things when we're younger that we just don't get to do. You know, many of us hope that we might take our children off to amazing places or do fantastic things. We never manage to do that because we don't quite have enough money or our work is too difficult or we don't quite get the time. Um, we lose uh, routines and stability during transition. When we change jobs, we have to grieve the fact that we now have to travel, I don't know, two hours to work, not 20 minutes, for example. Um, sometimes we emigrate to different countries, have to grieve our previous culture, um, maybe grieve our old house if we have to move to a different house. As our children grow up, they become independent, and, and we lose them in some way. You know, we, they're, they're gone, and they're off doing things, and we have to grieve that, the grief that they're not small anymore. You know, Abba wrote a song about that. Uh, slipping through my fingers. It's, there's, a, there's a sense that we have to be able to process 
that loss. Eventually, we, we age. We, we uh, lose our youth. We can't do everything that we wanted to do. And we, there are things that we would wish that we had time to do that we just won't get to do. You know, our parents age. We need to care for them through illness and through dementia. We experience many losses and we need to grieve for many things during our lives. If we never learn how to process grief and loss, we will be in trouble. I remember watching a program with Ellie, uh, a program called uh, Louis Theroux. Are you guys familiar with Louis Theroux? He does these really interesting documentaries. He always kind of goes to the most awkward place and just tries to try and understand what's going on. I find them fascinating. And one he did on plastic surgery, and there were some examples of people there who were simply unable to grieve the fact that they were aging, um, and they were uh, unrecognisable as people because they hadn't... Um, they had so much plastic surgery to try and make themselves look younger that I, I, they had lost some of who they were in that process. And it was very difficult to, to kind of reconcile that. And it, and it looked like a lack, um, a, uh, the fact that they were sort of 50 years old couldn't accept the fact that they weren't 20 anymore. And it was very sad. And I felt quite um, cut up about that. And, and my heart went out to them, really. Um, so if we don't learn how to grieve, we will have trouble Uh, as we progress through the ever-changing stages of life. How does our culture teach us how to process this? How does our culture teach us how to to, uh, deal with grief and loss? And unfortunately for us, not very much or not very well. These are the sorts of different things that our culture teaches us, and it's just on the other side. Um, Our culture teaches us to go west with grief. And what I mean is, as the sun sets over something that is finishing, over something that we are losing, um, in the distance in the West, our culture teaches us to run towards the the sun and to hopefully grasp the last dying embers of the sunset before it's gone and it's too late. Um, So there are lots of different ways that we as a society self-medicate in order to be able to process grief. And this is true if you're experiencing a catastrophic loss such as a bereavement, but it's also true if you experience just the general, the general kind of getting older or, or the grief that we have to go through in life. For example, we deny. We deny we're suffering for anything. We deny that it's a problem. We deny that we're hurting. We deny that there's anything wrong. We just don't acknowledge our feelings. I, I feel just fine. It doesn't bother me that my business quit or that I had to close my business or that I got fired. Or I don't mind that my friend died as he's in heaven, right? Well, actually, that's not how we feel, is it? We're, we're gutted. <laughs> you know, that's just not real. Um, and we selectively forget how we're feeling. We can minimize it when things are wrong. Uh, we admit something is wrong, but then we say it's sort of less serious than it actually is. So my son's doing okay with God. He's just, you know, drinking once in a while. When it's actually he's drinking heavily, not really coming home, not sure what he's doing, really worried about him. It's really easy for us to, to medicate by minimizing, blaming others. The reason my brother is so sick is because the doctor's messed up. You know, they messed up his medication, now he's really sick, and that's not fair. You know, actually, it's probably not the doctors, possibly just the fact that we can't cope with the fact that our son is sick. Or blaming ourselves. It's my fault my mum doesn't take care of me and drinks all the time. I'm just not worth it. You know, a lot of us teach that lie to ourselves as we're children, and we have to unpick that as we go through life. Uh, Rationalising, excuses, justifications. Don't you know that anger runs in his family? No, no wonder he's like that for example, or I get my angry outbursts from my dad. I can't do anything about my temperament. Um, Rationalising, excuses, distracting. Cheer up, it may never happen. (laughs) Or, you know, we had a lovely holiday last year. Our marriage is fine, isn't it, really? You know, we had a great holiday, but distraction, not really getting to the issues. 
um, or becoming hostile. He's dead, okay? He's just not coming back. There's no point talking about it. That kind of hostility that comes out of us when we're trying to deal with real pain and not uh, dealing with it appropriately. So doing these things amounts, as I said here, to, cha- to chasing the sunset as it's going down. You know, to run as fast as we can uh, towards the light, hoping that it might still be there, to try and cling on to the old, the things that are actually gone, that we can never get back. Um, now, that's not what the book of Job teaches us to do. If you look at what Job does, he does not do that. A lot of his friends tell him to do that, but he does not do that. Um, he, uh, some of his friends tell him that he should get in, like, you know, hire a really fast car and chase the sunset as fast as he can. You know, it would actually, you'd have to be going at 629 miles an hour in order to actually chase the sunset, I worked out, if you were in the UK. Eventually you'd run out of land and then you'd be in trouble. Um, hopefully you'd notice before. But, uh, but, but um, that's kind of what people try and do sometimes. They really just sit in the kind of grief you know, it's like Queen Victoria who uh, you know, spent the rest of her life laying out her husband's bedclothes and holding her ni- his nightshirt in his arms for 60 years or something. You know, Miss Havisham, who was in the Great Expectations novel by Charles Dickens, who was uh, grieved so much and couldn't let go of the fact that her husband had jilted her on her wedding day that she wore her wedding dress for the rest of her life until it turned yellow. Um, comical, we think, but people do do that internally uh, metaphorically in their own hearts, don't they? We know that they do. We know that we do that sometimes. Um, so we can deny, we can minimize, we blame others, blame ourselves, we can rationalize, we distract, we get angry, we get hostile, we chase the sunset, but it does not work. That is not what Job, the book of Job teaches us, and that is not how God would have us deal with our grief. What we have to do is we have to do the scary thing. Okay? This is the only way through. We can't go west, we have to go east. We have to, you can't really see that there, we have to walk with God into the darkness. That's all that we can do. We have to uh, process our grief. We have to wrestle with God. We have to deal with the pain that we're dealing with and only then will there be a sunrise. The quicker we walk east, the quicker the sun will come up over the horizon. The more we go west, the further away the sunrise is. So what can we actually do about grief? What does the book of Job teach us about grief? How can we deal with this? Um, there are no easy answers. You know, it's not easy. None of this stuff is easy. But there are things that we can do. Okay, the first thing we can do is pay attention to how we are feeling. Okay, we have little theology in the church often for anger, sadness, waiting, and depression. Okay, we say, how are you? And people say, fine, fine, you know, I still haven't found a job. Or, you know, um, still as difficult as before, but God's working everything for good, I hope. Maybe. Um, but we can't, we don't necessarily acknowledge actually how we're feeling. We find it difficult to say, actually, I'm doing really badly, and I don't like anyone, and I don't like you very much, and <laughs> thanks for asking. And, you know, and then, and I don't really want to be here, but I know I have to be here, and I'm just getting through. You know, imagine if someone said that to you, how would you feel? <laughs> but we don't, we don't do it in the church, we're not so good at it. But ultimately, um, That is what we see in the Bible from people who are suffering. Job screamed out in pain, May the day of my birth perish. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. Can you imagine praying that in church out loud? Kind of interesting. He struggled, wept, shouted, and railed against God for 35 chapters. It's a long book, but there's an awful lot of it in there. Um, 
This is not something that we just see in Job. We see this in Jesus. Jesus wept over his friend's death just before he raised him up, which is always interesting. But, but you know, we might think, oh, why did he bother weeping if he was just going to raise him from the dead in a minute? But, but he, he knew how to engage and process grief, didn't he? Which is quite interesting. He cried out in grief over Jerusalem, the city, because he knew it was going to be torn down and destroyed. And he was devastated by it. The Psalms is an amazing book of the Bible, 150 prayers and hymns. And we think, oh, the Psalms, they're so uplifting. They're so encouraging. Two-thirds of the Psalms are laments and complaints. Okay? If the Psalms is our school of prayer, it's often called a thing of teaching us how to pray. We kind of miss those bits, right? We kind of just deal with a third of the Psalms, like the Lord is my shepherd. You know? But even that, you know, even though I walk through the dark valley... <laughs> You know, but, we, but there are so many psalms in there that are just laments, complaints. Oh God, everything is terrible. You know, and that's how we're meant to pray. The psalms is our school of prayer. We are meant to learn how to pray like this. We need to pay attention to our feelings and to our grief rather than medicating ourselves through rationalizing, denial, minimizing, all of the things I just talked about. Okay? Um, that's the first one, paying attention. The second thing is to wait. Wait in the confusing in-between I quite like this. 46,000 days. Uh, you have to wait until that download finishes. 127 years. If they started it in 1891, it would just be finishing. Um, that's kind of the, the length of time we're talking about. It's very difficult to wait on God when things are confusing. It's very difficult to wait on God when things we don't, they're just going on that we don't understand. But we're told that we have to. In the story of Job, do you know what all of his friends said to him when all of this terrible stuff happened to him? Well, clearly you sinned. Clearly you did something wrong. That's why God is punishing you with all of this stuff. All you need to do is just say sorry, repent. Say sorry is what that means. And then just, you know, it'll be fine. But he hadn't sinned. He hadn't done anything wrong. That wasn't true. Uh, And it was very unfair. His friends didn't have any room for the mystery of God in the midst of all of this. They didn't have any room for a God who just does stuff that we don't understand. And therefore, they tried to fix Job and defend God, and they ended up making him feel about 10 times worse. Have you ever experienced that? When someone goes, oh, cheer up, you know, um, it'll be okay. When I, uh, in 2011, I lost my business. Uh, I went through um, uh, liquidation, administration. We had to sell everything in the company. Um, I cried a lot. It was difficult. Um, And I remember going to a conference uh, earlier, um, or uh, sorry, a few months later, and I remember sitting in a bar with someone. I wasn't having a very good time. In fact, I was pretty miserable uh, (laughs) because I didn't want to be there. Everyone else around me was successful, and I just basically failed as a businessman. That's how I felt. And and someone came up to me and said, oh, yeah, yeah. He'd had probably too much to drink. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you did that company, didn't you? Yeah, that was a really good company. Yeah, you must be gutted. And he wandered off, and I'm like... I left soon after that, actually. <laughs> it was not a good time. But, um, but you know, that, that was, in some ways that was good because I kind of acknowledged how I was feeling, but he didn't offer any sympathy or anything like that. But, anyway. but, um, but ultimately, I just had to wait in the midst of that. There was no way of getting that back. You know, there was no way of getting that company back. There was no way of getting that job back. A number of, a uh, few months later, many of my friends who run very similar companies to mine sold them for really quite a lot of money. Um, and uh, three or four of them did, actually. You know, just one after the other. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, that's, that's great. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I was just thinking, this is, this is just not, this is not obviously not the path God had for me, and that's fine, but I don't, I'm not happy, and I've, I feel like I'm a complete failure. And that went on for two years. 
Um, and, and through that process, I had to forgive some people who treated me, as, as I felt, very badly. And that was very, very difficult. Um, so so it, was, it, was very, it was a very, very difficult process for me. And, and I had to learn how to wait um, for a long time. In some ways, I'm still waiting. I, I haven't started another one or anything. You know, God hasn't restored that. You know, but I'm doing different things now, and I'm, and I'm happy doing them. But it just gives you an, an example of something where you're just in the middle of mystery, and you just don't know what's going on. You know, who knows what's going on? Um, what, what God is doing and we have to learn how to accept what God is doing and wait in the confusing in between refusing to accept trite explanations of what is actually going on um, the third thing we need to do is we have to come to terms with the fact that we are limited as people um, you know you can't see the top thing there it says uh, you can't do all of the things all of the time uh, accept it and choose peace but unfortunately we've lost the, the white things <laughs> the white text uh, it says you can't do all of the things all of the time, accept it and choose peace. Um, the greatest loss that we must grieve is our limits. Job had to embrace these as he went through this wrestling with God. No one can stop us age, uh, stop us from aging. No one can stop the people around us from dying. Um, no one can change the way that their family of origin influences them, their ethnicity, their culture. Both marriage and singleness and children are all different types of limits. Um, if you're married, then you are less flexible in your life, you know, if you, because you're, you have to um, constantly pay attention to somebody else in your life as well as, being, um, uh, as, well as yourself. If you're single, you're, you are more independent, but there are other limits on that. Um, uh, if you have children, children are a real blessing, but they do limit your ability to do other things. Um, and, and yet, if you don't have children, there are other limits. Do you understand what I'm saying here? There's a sense that whatever, we, whatever family situation we find ourselves in, we have to grieve the other thing that we couldn't do. Uh, the IQ that we are given, the talents we're given, the gifts we're given, we simply cannot be good at everything. Like I said earlier, no one is good at you know, carpentry and philosophy and economics and maths, unless you're like Thomas Jefferson or something. Um, no one is good at all of those things um, at once. Even if we're millionaires, we're still limited in our wealth. Everyone always wants just a little bit more space and a little bit more money. That's just true about how we feel and who we are. Uh, temperament limits us. I am very bad at remembering to do things um, to my wife's endless um, irritation. And she's very patient with me. But I'm very forgetful. I often forget things. I often forget to you know, change the cat litter or fix the door handle that's broken for months sometimes. And that's very annoying. And uh, you know, I'm not very good at those kinds of things. Um, so I'm limited in that respect, and we all have our own temperament limits. Uh, we are limited by time. We simply cannot live in every continent and try every single profession we would like to. Um, work and relationships is uh, another area that we're limited. Work is fundamentally hard and difficult, and we have to work hard at it. That's because it's work. That's why it's called work. You know, there is, there is, it is a, there's a joy in work, but it is also something that we, we struggle with and, and toil at. Um, relationships are messy and difficult. We, can't, we don't have time or we don't have the capacity to love everybody as we would like to and we screw up and we offend people and, we, um, you know, and church cannot satisfy us. You, know, you come to church and people aren't nice to us and we go home depressed because you know, they can't satisfy us because we're people and we can't do everything and we, you know, all of that. Uh, understanding of God. We simply don't understand everything that God does. We, can't, uh, we don't have all of that. Now, understanding that this is true is actually fundamentally a gift to us. Um, let's have a look very quickly at uh, John the Baptist's attitude to limits. 
uh, which I love. This is fantastic. Uh, so these are John's disciples, just to give some context, uh, Jesus' ministry is sort of taking off. He's doing well. The crowds are following him. The people are being healed. John's sort of over there in the desert baptizing people still, and less people are turning up, and less people are turning up. And his disciples are like, huh, rabbi, that means teacher. He's, they're talking to John. That man, that man, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, look, he is baptizing now, and everyone's going to him. You know, they're kind of jealous, and this is, this is a real thing. Um, and get John's answer. This is incredible. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. So he's talking about his own ministry here. You yourselves can testify that I personally said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. Okay, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, he's talking about himself, and the bridegroom is Jesus, waits and listens for him. And he is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. And this is the best line. He must become greater, I must become less. What humility, what understanding of his calling and his purpose and his destiny in his life. Isn't that incredible? Uh, What a a model for us uh, to embrace who we are and what God has actually called us to be. Okay, a lot of the time in church we talk about the things that God has called us and we say, follow your dreams and embrace your dreams. And that is good and that is true. And we should follow our dreams. We should follow what God has called us to. What we shouldn't do is try and follow everybody else's calling at the same time. Okay, many of us are like babies. Um, I was just um, uh, playing with Pete's baby at the back. They're so cute, little tiny one. And, um, but babies are fundamentally suffer from a number of character deficits. Okay, they are arrogant. They are childish, kind of obviously. They, are, they have suffered from grandioseness. They scream for the mother to feed them, right? And take care of them. Take care of me. You must take care of me now. Otherwise, I'm going to scream some more. And, um, you know, the baby is just the center of the universe to them. You know, I am the center and you will feed me. Um, you know, everyone else exists to basically take care of their needs, right? That's how it is when you're a baby. Um, and at some point, you have to go from baby to sort of, you know, 40 and figure out in the middle, you know, the fact that that isn't actually true. And um, uh, we all must learn this we, in, in different ways, that we're not actually the center of the universe. That's part of growing up and parenting, isn't it, to teach our children that. And we, uh, but we often, as adults, we suffer from some of the effects of this. We can have these inflated egos about what God is calling us to do or calling us to be. Um, we can act as if we are God. We work trying to do more things than God actually ever intended us to do. And that sometimes, at the end of that road, is burnout, thinking that we can do more. You know, I, and we're convinced that the world will stop if we were to stop, uh, but it won't. And actually, that's probably because we're running ahead of what God has for us to do. And ultimately, what we need to do is trust in God, do the work that he calls us to, and be satisfied that we're doing his bit, that he becomes greater, and that we become less in our own lives. One of the greatest tasks of parenting, and indeed leadership, in church is to help other people accept these kinds of limits, to help guide people into their dreams, but help them to understand that, that those are their dreams, and that's what they should do, and not maybe something else, you know? Climbing the ladder of humility, just briefly touch on this. Um, We saw from John just how humble he had become as he had become so mature that he was able to say, God is greater, Jesus' ministry is greater, I must become less, I know what I'm called to do. In the same way, uh, we must become humbler as we go through this process, or we become humbler as we get more humble, as we go through this process. Um, As you see Job coming 
uh, through this process in his life, he becomes, it's interesting that all of his friends who irritated him all the way through the story, at the end, what does he do? Does he take vengeance? He had opportunity, but he prays for them and he blesses them, even though they were so unhelpful. Um, so I've reproduced um, something called St. Benedict's Ladder of Humility on the Sheet. I haven't got, quite got time to go through it, but um, there's a sense that as we climb this ladder where we do God's will, not our own will, we subject ourselves to others, we're patient to accept others' weaknesses without pointing them out, uh, you know, being radically honest to others, deeply aware of our own brokenness and our own sin, speaking less and then transforming into God's love. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a progression there. And that's not to take it too literally or too legalistically, but that kind of helps us to, to think about how we might grow in God as we process the, the losses and the limits and the grief in our lives, using that to mold and to shape us. And eventually, as we pay attention to our grief, as we wrestle with it, as we uh, pray it out to God, as we process our emotions before God, God is always a safe place, by the way, to process our emotions. As we wait in that confusing in-between place, we embrace the gift of the fact that we can't do everything. We climb this ladder of humility. Eventually, we can let the old thing birth the new thing in God's time. And we gather together, we huddle together in the cold, and we wait for the sun to come up as it comes up from the east. The old day is truly over. When we process grief and loss, by definition, we are not getting those things back. They will not come back in this world, in this life. Okay, when we lose someone, they do not come back. You know, Unless we pray for them and, they, and God raises them, that's amazing. But, but there's a sense that as we go through the months and the years of going through that loss, they, we, they don't come back. That day is gone, that day is over. Uh, and our youth doesn't come back in the same way. Our children grow. We don't get those tiny years with them, those precious years back. Um, we won't get those back, but there is a sunrise to our grief. There was blessing, um, and there is transformation. There is blessing, there is transformation. Um, the story of Job is meant to encourage us to trust in God with our grief with our grieving, with our lossing, with our limits, both in huge grief over big things and in smaller griefs over things that gradually we have to die to every day as we get older, as we grow in Jesus. The central message of Jesus is that suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation, doesn't it? We just shared, we just uh, took communion. We remember Jesus' body and his blood broken. We know that there is resurrection. We know that there is transformation. Our losses are real, but so is God. God is real, the living God. And we can uh, confidently look forward to the day where all things are made new. All things will be made new. Even if you're walking through the darkest thing that may take your entire life to walk through, there will be a sunrise one day. Jesus said he will make all things new. That is our hope in Jesus. And that's what we look to in the midst of all of the pain and the difficulty we go through. That is our guiding star that guides us towards the sunrise. Okay? There's nothing else that beats that. Can I have the band back? Thank you. I've just, um, I've asked the band to play this song. We're just going to sing one song together just to remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Um, and I'd encourage you uh, as we finish, to, to take a good hard look at yourself. Are you someone who is, uh, if you're someone who is in a difficult place at the moment and you know that you're grieving, you'll know that you're in the midst of bereavement, then I just encourage you that you're not alone and that that's okay. The fact that you're aware of what's going on, the fact that you're processing and wrestling with God, that is absolutely okay and part of what we should be doing. Okay? 
if you are someone who has experienced that but you don't know where to start with your own thoughts and your own minds, I just ask you to open your heart to God and ask him to show you. Like I said before, the, the, the Holy Spirit um, being with God, he's always a safe place to process those emotions. Even if we don't really understand them, I'd encourage you to start just unpacking them before him. And potentially, uh, you know, draw alongside someone who you love and who you trust uh, just to, to start talking that through with them and start talking about how you might be feeling. I'd encourage you to do that. If you're not in that place and you're not sure what God is doing, I'd just encourage you to open up your heart to him. You know, we all have to learn this. Um, may, many of us will have done through difficult situations we've been through, but not all of us. So can I just encourage you to just open your heart to him and hear what he would have to say to you about this subject?